Well, today I want to begin with a question. Who, outside of your present circle of friends, have you tried to include in your life recently? Who, outside of your present circle of friends, have you tried to include in your life recently? As you think about those that you've talked to or honestly tried to avoid, what is it that you use to decide who, should you, you should, uh, who is a candidate to connect with? You know, whether we want to admit it or not, all of us walk around with a list in our mind of categories, things that we uh, use to decide who it is that we want to connect with in our life. And as you think of your checklist, what does it entail? Is it what they wear? Or maybe how they wear their hair. It could be that his is too long or hers is too short. Sometimes our categories are related to chronology. For instance, older people may not want to be around those who are younger, or the younger may not want to be around those they consider aged. What is it that you use? Sometimes our our categories are tied to education. It could be the amount of education they have, or it may be the type. Are they homeschooled? Are they public schooled? Are they Christian or private schooled? Sometimes what we use are the person's rank, their position, the place they live, maybe the car that they drive. Sometimes our categories are are tied to the color of their skin, or it could be what they've done to their skin. Are they pierced, plugged, tattooed? I mean, what is it that you use to decide who you should connect with? As you think about those categories, you know, they're all external. And as we read 1 Samuel 16, 7, what it tells us is God doesn't look at the externals as man does, but he looks at the heart. And today as we turn in our Bible to James chapter 2, he's going to tell us that there, uh, we as his people are not to look at the external things, but instead we are to see and treat people as God does. Look with me at James 2, 1 through 13. It tells us here in James 2, 1, My brethren, do not hold, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man, And dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he said, do not commit adultery. And he also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, as we look at this, the section opens, reminding us once again, James is speaking to those who are Christians. He calls them my beloved brother, brethren, brothers, sisters in Christ. He speaks of their personal faith there uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he speaks of what is happening, he uses the context of a church service, the assembly. 
And he says in the church service, two men walk into the room. And he says that one of them is a rich guy and the other one is a poor person. And he says, the distinction you make on how you will receive them is based upon how they look. He uses the word favoritism. Some translations have partiality at the end of verse 1. And the Greek word here literally means to receive the face. To receive the face. And it was used to describe how you would meet somebody. And you would kind of elevate their chin and you would look at their face. And, and you would make a decision based upon the external of how they looked. And it goes beyond just the, the physical facial feature to maybe the way they dress, the status, the, the various things that you can see. And he says, based upon elevating their face to receive it, you then decide if you will elevate the person to a place of favoritism, a place of special treatment. Now, as he talks about this uh, related word in, in our day and age, in our English language, is the word prejudice. It comes from the Latin root, which means to prejudge someone. And prejudice is like receiving the face. It is where we simply look at the external and we make a decision about the person and how we will treat them, where we know nothing about their heart, where we know nothing about their character. Our nation has a past history of discrimination. And one of the areas where discrimination was very pronounced was in Major League Baseball. And when Jackie Robinson, the first African-American man to break the color barrier in the major leagues, was playing, he was brought on to the Brooklyn team, and everywhere that Jackie went, he was received with, with jeers and boos and all kinds of epitaphs and things that were hurled at him. And this happened not just in stadiums that were away, but it happened even in his home stadium. And one day he was playing a game there in Brooklyn, and uh, he made an error. You know, a lot of baseball players make a mistake, and fans sometimes boo, but the, the, the booing was merciless. They were, they were just, they wouldn't stop. They were jeering him. And as he stood at second base there with this crowd of people screaming, yelling, all kinds of things at him, he was humiliated. And this went on and on. Well, there was a shortstop by the name of Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee Reese walked over to where Jackie was at second base, and he stood next to him. And then he put his arm around Robinson and he looked up at the people in the stands. There's a statue commemorating this moment outside of a stadium. And as, as Pee Wee Reese stood with his arm around Robinson, he looked up at the crowd until they grew silent. And Robinson later said that arm around his shoulder saved his baseball career. He was ready to be done with it. He was ready to go back to the Negro Leagues, as they called him at that time. But that one arm around his shoulder saved his baseball career and helped break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. As you sit here today, I wonder if there is somebody in your world who needs an arm around their shoulder. Somebody in the school that you attend, a person who works in your office or on the base where you serve, a person in your neighborhood, maybe even somebody you see on the street? Is there somebody who needs you to reach out an arm and put it around their shoulder? You know, as you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, it reminds us that there came a point where God spread his arms out and he reached them around us to say, you are a sinner, you are far from me, but I welcome you. 
And what he offered to us didn't just save a career, it saved our life for all eternity, and it's been a change in our life. As you think about where God has you today, is there someone who needs an arm around his or her shoulder? It may even be the person sitting next to you this morning here in church. And for us, it may mean that we have to change the way we look at things. It may mean that we have to go against our upbringing, where we were brought up to discriminate or to see things a certain way. It may mean that we have to stand solo in a crowd where others are ostracizing. You know, Pee Wee Reese stood the risk of people turning on him as he stood beside Robinson, and yet he stood there and he put his arm around his teammate, and he said, this is wrong. And it changed everything. What God wants us to do as those who belong to him is he says we need to show his love to others. We need to see people as he sees them, not the externals but the heart, and to see that they were valuable enough to die for, and therefore that we should show his love through our life to those individuals. As James speaks of how these two different men were received, he makes clear the people were looking merely at the externals. He says the first guy walks in, and, and he's wearing a gold ring. Now, it's, it's not like this. You see a gold ring on my hand that says I'm married. But the word that he uses here literally reads gold-fingered. It's kind of like the old Mr. T character. Remember him with all the bling? He had both hands and jewelry. And the word literally means a hand that is laden with gold. And in Roman society, the way that you showed your level of affluence was by the, the number of rings you wore on your hands. Now, just like, you know, nothing's new. Uh, in Roman society, there were shops that would rent gold rings. So you could, you know, pretend you were richer than you were. You could go to an event and kind of load up on jewelry and say, hey, look at my status. It's kind of like what you see with the Oscars or the other award shows. Whether you know it or not, most of those stars, when you see them dripping with diamond and all that jewelry, it's all borrowed, it's all rented, it's all loaned to them. Now, they're rich enough to own some of it themselves, I know, but uh, it's that idea of the person walked in and the way they were dressed, people immediately said, this, this, this guy is, is rich. Not only was he laden with gold on his hand, but it says that his clothing, he was wearing fine clothing. Now, the type of word that is used here uh, is found in Acts 10.30 and Revelation 15.6 to describe the clothing of heavenly beings. It literally means bright and shining. It was like blinding. This wasn't just nice threads. This stuff was stunning. So in walks this guy walking the red carpet in his best-dressed clothes, wearing all the jewelry. And in contrast to him, we're told that another guy walks in. Now, his clothes are described as being shabby. The, the word that is used here is the same word we saw back in James 1.21, the same root that described the filthy garments that we are to take off and lay aside, if you remember that word. This is it. And so when this man walks in, he's wearing dirty work clothes. The, the average person in that day had one set of clothing. Only those who were affluent owned more than one change of clothes. And so this guy walks in wearing his best. He's wearing all he has. His clothing is worn. It's, it's soiled. It's, it's his work clothing. You know, sometimes we look at people, and I, I hear people tell me, you know, Pastor, you need to tell people to wear their best to church on Sunday. And I tell them, you know, sometimes you don't know this, but they are wearing their best. What you see as inferior clothing is actually their best. And here was a man who walked in wearing his Sunday best. And, 
As people looked at him, the usher sees these two guys come to the door, and he's blinded by the bling of the first guy. And he says to him, oh, you, sir, come, come. And he ushers him right up to the front row. Those were the best seats in the synagogue. And that's the word that is used here for the assembly. It's synagogue, the Greek word. Because remember, we're talking to a predominantly Jewish audience who had come to faith in Jesus. Now, I love how y'all are such servants because you you typically leave the front rows, the best seats for everybody. (laughs) And y'all fill in in the back and say, we want the best seats for, for other people. Well, in this day, these were the best seats. You had to buy them. You had to pay top dollar for them. And so they, they bring this guy in and they, they put him right there for show. And this other guy walks in and there's not even a seat for him. He says, uh, go, go stand over there. Kind of in the back behind the pillar. And the other option he's given is, or you, you could sit by the footstool. The, the Greek preposition used is hupo, which you'll recall means under. So he literally says, you can sit under the guy's footstool. And this was a word that was used in Psalm uh, 110.1 where it says the enemies of God will be put under his footstool. It's a sign of subjugation. They're saying we don't have a seat for you. You can stand in the back. You can sit on the floor. Just you need to be out of sight, out of mind. But this other guy, we've got a place for him. Now the irony James says in verses 6 and 7 is you're showing preferential treatment to the kind of people who in large part are the very ones persecuting you. Remember the audience James is writing to were the Jews of the diaspora who had been dispersed because of the persecution. And in large part it was the, the Roman elite and it was the religious leadership of the Jews who had rejected Jesus who were persecuting. And he says, these are the guys dragging you into court and taking your stuff. These are the ones blaspheming the name of Jesus. And yet you elevate them based upon the externals. Now, please hear this clearly. James isn't saying all rich people are bad. As you read the Bible, there were lots of rich people who were followers of Christ. Rich and powerful people who supported the church. Rich and powerful people who uh, took care of, of the early needs of the church. Even Jesus, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which the scripture says was a rich man. And Nicodemus, the teacher of the law. High society, high status. He was a follower. But what James is telling us here, brothers and sisters, is if the way you treat a rich person is different than the way you treat a poor person, you're sinning. It's prejudice. It's wrong. It's discrimination, and it doesn't belong in the church. It doesn't belong anywhere, but he says especially here in the church. Now, last time we talked about the danger of looking in a mirror and forgetting what we see. And I don't know if you realize this, but a mirror is is just a piece of glass with a thin coat of silver on it, isn't it? It's amazing. We put a little bit of silver or gold, and suddenly we can't see beyond it, right? And what he says is rather than seeing through to who the person really is, you're, you're, you're seeing the externals. And he says, I don't want you to do this. A good picture of what we are to do is to be like the lady justice. She's blinded. She wears a blindfold. And, and what is supposed to happen in the justice system is the merits of the argument or the person are weighed, not by what we see, but the, the true weight of what is right or wrong. And he says, this is what we should do as believers. It's not based upon what we see. We should literally all be blindfolded. And we should be seen as God sees the heart, the person. He says in verse 4, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? 
In the Greek text, the way the the phrase here is, it it assumes an affirmative answer. So what he's saying is, the answer, of course, is rhetorical. You guys know you're wrong in what you're doing. He says you shouldn't be judging based upon what you see. The story is told of a a very rich and affluent church in in a city. It was filled with the rich and powerful of the city. And one day, a poor woman comes walking into this church The way she was dressed, where she lived, was the wrong side of the tracks. And as she comes into this service, she really stuck out. Well, at the end of the service, there was an altar call type of given. You know, some churches receive people at the end of the service. And and this woman came walking to the front, and the pastor was there. And as she comes forward again, it's very clear she's different from everybody else there. And and she says to the pastor, the music was great. The message moved me. I want to make this my church home. And, and the pastor says to her, you know, this, I, w- I want you to really think this through. This, this may be an emotional response. And uh, so come, come back next week if God leads you to do that. But I, I want you to really take some time to think about it. She comes the following Sunday, the same thing. She, she feels connected to the church and she walks to the front and she says to the pastor, I'm, I'm ready to join the church. And he says, well, well let's not be too hasty. He says, I want you to go home and read your Bible and really think this is a big decision and we want you to think about it. So she leaves and the third Sunday she comes, same thing happens. She wants to join. The pastor says, you know, I I want you to go home this week and I want you to pray. I want you to ask God every single day, God, do you want me in that church? Do you want me to join this church? And so the, the woman goes home and she does what the pastor said. Well, the next Sunday comes and she's not there. And the pastor doesn't see this woman for six months. And one day he's walking down the street and he bumps into this lady. And he says, oh, he says, I, I haven't seen you at the church. I, um, I, I guess God made clear to you he didn't want you in our church. Is that what happened? She said, well, you know, pastor, I did what she said. I went home and, and I prayed and I asked God. I said, God, you know, do you want me in this church? And, and he said to me, honey, he said, you don't need to be in that church. He said, I've been trying to get into that same church for 20 years, and they won't let me in either. (laughs) You know, I am thankful that Wayside Chapel is a place that I believe people of all backgrounds, rich or poor, white collar, blue collar, different racial categories, different backgrounds, different age groups, feel welcome. And it's because you... As the church, the church is not just the pastor who stands up front. The church is not this building. The church are all of you. You make up Wayside Chapel. And it's because you're willing to extend a welcome to people who are different than you. It's because you're willing to reach your arm out to people who need it. You know, we have this welcome moment in our service, but you've heard me say before that the welcome center for our church isn't where you go at the end of the service or what happens in here. It's, it's the way you welcome people when they ride the shuttle over or when you pass them in the parking lot or when they're walking the halls or looking for a class or coming in here. It's the way that you as a church make people feel welcome. And that's what God calls on us to do. And while y'all are doing a great job here at Wayside, what I want to remind you of is when you walk out of the doors of Wayside and you go back into your homes, your neighborhoods, your workplaces and schools, God wants you doing the very same thing. 
He doesn't want you circling up with your friends and saying, well, you know, we have our us four and no more group and, you know, that person's different and they're not of our right group or clique or this or that. God says we need to be those who are demonstrating his love, not just in the doors of Wayside, but out there where we are the church. And so as you look at your life today, are you doing those things? Are you receiving those people that are out there? I want to remind you that when we look at this passage, as James is talking to us, think of Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus walked the earth as God with flesh on, and and that is a concept that should still blow your mind. Philippians talks about the great kenosis passage and how could the creator become part of the creation? How could God take on flesh and blood? And as he did, think about what he chose to come as. He didn't come and be born into the palace as the son of an earthly king, rich and prosperous. He was born to a peasant family. He broke down the wall of rich and poor. He said, I will come to the poorest of the poor and be born into that family. As Jesus walked this earth, he was rejected by many because of his background. They said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They said, the Messiah can't be from this little tiny backwoods town. And yet that's who Jesus was. There were others who ostracized him because of his family standing, not just because they were poor, but because they said Jesus is an illegitimate child. He wasn't conceived through the Holy Spirit, as the scripture teaches. He was an illegitimate guy through an out-of-wedlock situation with Joseph, or better yet, they would say, through a Roman soldier in that day. You know, we live in a society that is exploding with single-parent households. And there are children, boys and girls, who are in homes that do not have a godly father and a godly mother. They have one or the other. And what are we as individuals doing to step into that situation? Men, there are families where there is not a godly man to be an influence and a role model to children in the home. And you have an opportunity here through the children's ministry, through student ministry, through the way you serve in Colonial Hills that you just heard Michael talk about earlier. We have an opportunity to be that male influence that shows little boys and girls what a godly man looks like. Ladies, you have the same opportunity. We have a number of single men in our church who are doing their best as well to raise children, and they don't have a godly lady in their home to be showing men and women as well that are growing up what it means to see a godly lady, and you have that same ability to influence. Jesus was ostracized because of his background. The scriptures tell us they would talk about Jesus and say he teaches with such authority. And yet there were others who said he doesn't have the right degree on the wall. He didn't go to our school. He doesn't have our stamp of approval. And so they rejected what he said. Think of the group that that Jesus ran with. They ostracized him because you're not in the right social circles, Jesus. You have this ragtag group of rejects. He was talking to women in that day, which was unheard of. He was talking to Gentiles. He was dealing with sinners. He was dealing with the outcasts of society, those who were diseased and other things. And so they said, Jesus, you're not in the right circle, and so we're going to reject you. Do we do the same thing? Do we look at people and, and reject them? You know, as we're talking about externals and discrimination, can I tell you something? It goes both ways. It's not just rich or powerful people who discriminate against poor people. I've seen situations where poor or those who are in uh, different situations discriminate against others. I've seen people that are tatted and pierced up make fun of people because they're buttoned up. 
And that's discrimination too. And what God says to us is you've got to stop doing that. You've got to see people as I do. I want to remind you that in the early church, there was a big battle that went on between whether Jews and Gentiles could worship together, whether the Gentiles were second-class citizens. The Samaritans, you'll recall, racially, were a half-breed group of a Jew and a Gentile situation, and they were discriminated against as well. And as we read about the early church and what was happening in Acts chapter 10, Peter, the apostle Peter, was given a vision. There was a situation where Peter was, as as a good Jew, was saying, do the Gentiles belong in? And God gave him this vision where this sheet came down from heaven loaded with unclean animals. The Levitical law said certain foods were unclean, certain animals were untouchable. And as Peter, this good observant Jew, sees this, this smorgasbord of animals, God says, go ahead and eat them. Peter goes, those are unclean, God. And God said, no, Peter, eat them. And he was showing them that the the law, their their set of rules and regulations was was not to exclude the Gentiles. And in Acts 10.34, this is what Peter said. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Our same word, God doesn't lift the face. God doesn't look at the externals. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if God is one who says we are not to exclude others based upon external things or societal situations or the status of a person, how can we who are Christians put up a wall that God has torn down? Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. It says that when Jesus Christ came and he was crucified on the cross, what he did was he broke down the balustrade, the dividing wall. It was that wall that was in the temple that separated the, the Gentiles from the Jews. Remember, the Gentiles could only come this far. And what it says is God has broken down the wall of separation. He not only broke down the wall that separated Jew from Gentile, but through the cross, he broke down the wall that separated me and you from God because of our sins. He became that bridge laid across the chasm that we could walk across to come to God. He said, you are no longer separated from me because of your sin. That's what I did. And if God has done that for all of us, if he has broken down that wall, we cannot put up a wall of our own, whether it is here at church or in our lives outside of here. God says prejudice is a sin, discrimination is wrong. You are to stop doing it, and you are to see people as I see them. As you think about what Jesus did with people, he was always calling them to come. And he accepted them as they were. Remember Romans 5, 8 tells us, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at our worst, while we were far from God, while we were separated, it says he came and he broke down the wall. And what Christian love does is it takes somebody where they are and it loves them too much to leave them there. Remember when Jesus would accept people, he would always say to them, now go and sin no more. He said there is to be a change in your life, and he says the same thing to us. Christian love does not leave somebody where they are, but it takes them to where they need to be. And for us as believers, it may mean that we need to meet somebody where they are, outside of the family of God, and help them to come into the family of God so they can hear the message of grace and truth and come to him. Christian love doesn't mean you have to like somebody. I'll confess something to you. There are times I see somebody and I don't really like them. And yet what I do is I allow God to override my own feelings. 
We need to let scripture be our standard. We need to let love be our law, and we need to let mercy be our message. God calls on us as believers to be those who see people as God sees them, those who need to come to him, those who need to change. Sometimes we exclude people because they say, we say, well, they don't talk right, they don't look right, they don't this. And what we do is we confuse things by saying, we who are already in and understand the truth, we want to put all that on them. And what God says is, come to me, and then I will help you grow and become more like you need to be. And so this is what God calls us to do. If they're already a part of the family of God, then we welcome them in. If they're not yet a part of the family of God, then we help them to become a part of the family of God through showing his love to others. In verse 8, James talks about showing God's love. He says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, the royal law that is mentioned here comes from Leviticus 19.18, where it tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus reaffirmed this in in the Gospel of Matthew in 22.39. He told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's called the royal law because it is decreed by the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. It's called the royal law because it is a pillar of the entirety of the law. In the book of Romans, in 13.10, it says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Luke 10.25 and following, you'll remember that there was a lawyer who stood up while Jesus was teaching one day. And he said, he, he, he confronted Jesus and he says, uh, Lord, well, you didn't call him Lord, teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? He was showboating. He wanted everybody to notice him. And so Jesus says to him, well, you're a teacher of the law, right? So he says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And this guy goes, man, this is great. This is a softball right across the plate, home run. So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says in verse 28, you have answered correctly. He goes, yeah, I know. I'm pretty good. And then Jesus drops the bomb. Do this and you will live. Now the lawyer's caught. So he tries to get out of it. He tries to justify himself, Luke 10, 29 says. So he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor, Jesus? And this is where we find the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that story? There's a man who's beaten and robbed. He's left in a ditch. Along come three different people. First, it's a priest. He walks around. Then comes a a Levite, another one who served in the temple. He goes around. And then comes the Samaritan, that hated half-breed, half-Gentile, half-Jew. And it says he shows mercy. He takes care of this guy. Jesus goes around and says to the lawyer, and uh, who became a neighbor to this man is how Jesus phrases it. He can't even choke out the words of the Samaritan. He goes, well, I guess the guy who showed mercy. And Jesus says, that's what you're to do. You see, being a neighbor is not about the person's proximity to where we live. It's how we respond to the need or the person that God brings across our path. We are to be a neighbor, Jesus says, to whom became a neighbor to this man. And God says we are to love our neighbor. And the question literally every day is, to whom can I become a neighbor? To whom can I show the love of God? 
And when the royal law is lived out, great things happen, both vertically in our relationship with God and horizontally in our relationship with others. And as we do these two things, we form the cross of Christ and we demonstrate and give a visual of the gospel to others. Ernest Gordon wrote a book called Through the Valley of Kwai. And in it, he tells of the miraculous transformation that took place among the Allied prisoners in a Japanese concentration camp in 1943. He says, in 1942, the camp was a sea of mud and filth, the scene of grueling labor and brutal treatment by the Japanese guards. There was hardly any food, and the law that pervaded the whole camp was the law of the jungle, every man for himself. Twelve months later, he says, the ground of the camp was cleared and clean. The bamboo bed slats had been debugged. Green boughs had been used to rebuild huts and keep out the, the rains. And on Christmas morning, 2,000 men were in worship. What caused this change? He says, well, during that year, a prisoner had shared his last crumb of food with another man who was also in desperate need. This man was known for sharing his food with others who were starving just like himself. And as he shared his last meal with another man, he died of starvation. As the prisoners went through his belongings, they found a Bible. And some who had witnessed his ultimate act of love wondered, could that Bible be the secret of his willingness to give sacrificially to others? And so one by one, the prisoners began to read it. And soon the Spirit of God began to grip the hearts of these men and change their lives, and many came to Christ. And in a period of less than 12 months, there was a revival in that camp, a revolution of the way people went from every man for himself to take care of every other man. And it changed the camp. The writer says the royal law was lived out, and it did its work. Now, as we talk about doing these things, I want to make sure you don't get confused and think I'm telling you, you become acceptable to God by the way you fulfill the law. Look at the next verses because James makes very clear that's not the case. He says in James 2, 10 through 13, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak and act as those who are to, to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When he says that if we break even one part of the law, we are breaking it all, it's because God says to us, the law is not a series of detached little commandments. To illustrate the law, think of a chain. Now, imagine this chain went all the way up into heaven. And the way you were trusting in getting to God, as you said, there is this chain. Each one of these represents, each link is a different one of the laws. And you're saying, I'm going to hold on to this and I'm going to climb up this chain and I'm going to work my way to God and I'm going to do everything I need to do. And what God says to us is, if you want to do it this way, each one of these links represents a different law. He says, he uses two extremes here, adultery and murder. And what he's saying is, if, if you kill somebody, you're just as guilty of adultery as you are everything else. And we may say, well... Good, Roger, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I'm good. No, you're not. 
Because what the law says is if you don't keep it in its entirety, have you ever lied? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever stolen a cookie, a packet of something, a pen from work? I mean, each one of these is a link. You know, this chain, if I break even one link, what happens to the chain? It breaks, you fall. And what the Bible says is none of us, none of us has kept the entirety of the law, brothers and sisters. We don't do it that way. We've all sinned. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. Written in the book, the Bible, the book of the law to perform them. James says you can't fulfill the law legalistically. You can't do it. There's only one person who ever walked this earth who lived a 100% perfect life, Jesus Christ. God himself in the flesh, which is why he became our sacrifice. The only one who did not owe the penalty of sin, which is death, is Jesus. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, what we earn by how we live, the wages of sin is death. But... But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He says we cannot work our way to God. He says you can't fulfill the legalistic side of the law, but there is the law of liberty. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, law and liberty, that's an oxymoron. That's paradox. Those don't go together. Well, think about it. They do. Let me illustrate it this way. Many of you know before I was a a pastor, I was a policeman in Dallas. And one of the things I did for a period of my service there was to be a field training officer. So I get these these rookies out of the academy. They knew the law in their head. They had learned things. But they get on the street, and they have to learn how things really work. And one day I'm riding shotgun. You guys yell, shotgun? Well, shotgun is actually the passenger seat where there is a shotgun in a police car. So I'm riding shotgun. So Pat is driving. And he's coming up this hill, and as he tops the crest of the hill and goes over it, there's another police car sitting on the median shooting radar. Now, as Pat comes over the hill, he immediately slams on the brakes. I was wearing my seatbelt, which kept me from smashing my face into the dashboard, but I jerk forward, and I go, what are you doing? And he goes, they scared me. You can tell Pat had a guilty conscience. He wasn't speeding at that moment, but, you know, he's like, you know, cop, speeding, brake. How many of y'all do that? (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) And so the law of liberty says, guess what? If you are going the posted speed limit, you don't worry about when there's a policeman on the median, do you? Because he's not going to give you a speeding ticket. You have liberty. You have freedom from fear. You know what I I just, you know, I love to see times there's a a police car going up the road and they're going five under and what happens? Everybody's hanging back and, you know, I'm going, come on, come on. You can go faster. And, you know, you kind of put your blinker on as you change lanes, work your way to the front. And I pass the police car and everybody's going, oh, he's passing the cop. Yeah, I'm passing the policeman. I'm going under this. I'm going the speed limit. There's liberty. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> Make sure your inspection is good. Your license is up to date. No, you know. But as I pass him, if I'm obeying the laws, there's liberty. And what he's telling us here in the book of James is there is a law and there is liberty for we who are in Christ. As I told Pat, as he slams on the brakes, I said, Pat, you're the police. 
Now, I know you're thinking, yeah, cops break all the laws. They think, no, no, no. I was just telling him, Pat, you are in the group enforcing the law, and because you're doing the law, you're, not, you're, you're okay. And what the Bible tells us is Christians who are in Christ, those who have had the righteousness of Christ imparted to our account. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, he said in John 19.30, it is finished. The Greek text literally says paid in full. He says, I've closed the account. I've met the debt. You are free. Galatians 2.20, which was written earlier from the passage I just read, tells us this. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account when we come to faith in Christ. And that is the law of liberty. He has fulfilled all of the links. He has provided the way home, and that is how we get there. Earlier in James 2.5, we were told that as believers, we have been made heirs of the kingdom. There is both a present and a future benefit. The future is we will have eternal life home in heaven with the Lord. But he says there is present freedom as well. The Bible tells us we no longer have to be slaves to sin once we have come to Christ. Our chains are off. Now, as we think about what we've received, God says here we are to share it with others. We are to tell others about the love of God is also, and also to show his mercy. Look at the last part of this passage. Because James speaks of the mercy of God and how when we fail to show it to others, there will be a boomerang effect on the day of judgment. We don't have time today to go into Matthew chapter 18 and, and read the entirety of the parable there. But I encourage you to go home and read Matthew chapter 18. In it, you will find a parable of the unmerciful servant. And this is a, a servant who goes before the king. We're told that they're the kingdom of heaven and God is the king, so he's the master in the parable. And it says there is a servant who is called before the king, and he says, you owe a debt, and I need you to pay your debt. Now, the passage tells us he owes 10,000 talents, and we're going, doesn't mean much to me. A talent weighed about 75 pounds. It was used to speak of precious metal. So this guy owes 750,000 pounds of gold to the master, to God, the king. Now we're all going, whoa, that's, that's big. Let me tell you how big it is. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the day, tells us the tax that was owed on the gross national product of the six provinces, including Israel and around to the Roman government in that year, was 800 talents. This guy owes 10,000 talents. Anybody here know what the national debt is? Yeah, me neither. It keeps going, right? This guy owes the national debt of the United States several times over. Friends, you can have Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, all the billionaires of the world meet up with you to help pay your debt, and guess what? You can't pay it. And that's the point of the parable. We owe a penalty to God for our sins called death, not just the physical death, but the second eternal separation. And so God says he calls us as the servant before him, and he says, you owe a penalty. And he says, you're going to pay it. The passage says, the guy says, I can't do it. He says, well, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to sell your family. I'm going to sell all your possessions. Again, it doesn't even put a dent in it. This guy will never, ever get out of prison. Eternal separation from God. Now he begins to beg and plead. 
Show mercy on me. And amazingly, you know what the king does? He shows mercy. It says he cancels the debt. He clears the account and says, you're free. You don't owe it. The guy walks out of there free. And he encounters another servant who owes him what amounts to 100 days worth of wages. A minuscule amount in comparison to what he's just been relieved of. So what does this guy do? Say, hey, your debt's canceled, right? No, it says the wicked servant grabs this other guy and he says, pay me what you owe. I'm going to put you in prison. You are going to pay it all. Now, some other servants see this and they go, hey, this isn't right. And they run back to the king and they say, that wicked servant you just forgave, guess what he did? They tell the story. The king says, you know, I need this guy back in here. So he comes back in. The king says, what is this I hear? I forgave you this enormous debt and you didn't show the same mercy. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Friends, as you think about your life today, how much has God forgiven you? We're coming to the communion table. And at the communion table, we are reminded of the mercy, of the grace, of the debt that God forgave for us. And what he says to us is those who have been forgiven of this immense debt we could never repay, why? Why won't we show the same mercy to somebody else? Why won't we take somebody who has hurt us, somebody who owes us a debt, somebody who has wronged us, and say to them, you know, I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven of a debt I could not ever pay. And while you owe me, I'm clearing the account. I'm showing the same mercy to you as God showed to me. As we come to this table today, it reminds us of the debt we owe, the penalty of death. It reminds us of God's great love to us where he demonstrated it for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And so if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, maybe you've been trying to climb that chain saying, I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to work my way to God. I'm going to fulfill the law. I'm going to do all the right. Friends, you can't do it. You've already broken many, many laws, many, many parts of the chain. You're already in the hole. You already owe the penalty of death, which is why Jesus came, which is why he died for you as he did for me. And what he says today is we have to humble ourselves. We have to say, God, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your standard of perfection, and I thank you that today you died for me. If you've never accepted his death in your place, as the trays are passed in a moment, I want you to take the bread representing the body of Christ. I want you to take the cup representing his blood and say, God, today I'm turning to you. Today, God, I'm accepting your death in my place. I'm accepting your payment for me. Thank you, God, for making me a part of the family. For the rest of us here today who have received him in the past, you, like myself, have made many sins. James will tell us later in this letter, we stumble in many ways. 
And so you may have some sins today you need to confess. Use this time to say to God, God, I've blown it in the past week or month or year or years in these areas. And today, God, I need your, your forgiveness. He offers it freely. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if you confess with your... That's Romans 10.9. 10, 10, First John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so say to God now, use this time to confess your sins to God. Think of those sins you need to be forgiven of. And I'd ask you as well to think of somebody that you maybe need to forgive. And today say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to forgive as I've been forgiven. Take and hold the elements. Men, will you pass them, please? And we'll take them together in a moment. But use this time to pray to the Lord and thank him for his great gift.
We've been talking today about the externals and how God tells us not to look at the externals. I want to remind you in Isaiah chapter 53 that speaks of the crucifixion of Christ. It says in there of Jesus, he had no stately form. That speaks of there was nothing that was exciting to look at. It goes beyond that and tells us that he was beyond just looking like a mere man, but he was beaten, bloodied. It says, through his stripes we were healed. We were pierced. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He suffered the worst way to die in that day. He literally was just beaten within inches of his life before he was nailed to a cross. Looking at him externally, even the, the leaders walked by and laughed at him and said, if, if you're really the Messiah, come down off that cross and we'll believe in you. And it was because he was the Messiah. Because he loved us. He loved us enough to give his life and die for us that he was there. It wasn't those nails that held him to the cross. It was his love. And what we hold in our hands is simply a piece of bread. It doesn't look like much to us, but it represents the one who died for us, the body of Christ seated in remembrance of him. <clears throat> and we hold in our hands a cup. It's just a little grape juice. But again, it's much more than what it looks like. Because what this represents for us is the precious blood of the Lamb. The blood that was poured out. The blood that was used to save us. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And the regular sacrifices offered in the temple could not remove our sin. But when Jesus came, John the Baptist said of him in John one twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What we hold in our hand represents... The payment, the payment for my sin and yours, what washed away our sins, the blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. You join me, please, in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great love, your great grace, your great mercy. Father, as men and women, boys and girls who belong to you, would we walk out of these doors today, Lord, as your messengers, your messengers of grace and mercy? Would we be those who are willing to put our arm around somebody who needs it? Would we be willing, Lord, to be in a situation where others may look at or laugh at somebody and ostracize possibly even us? But, Father, would we be those who are your lifeline? Would we be those who are willing to show your love? And through that message of our life, through the demonstration of what we do, may it be used to draw others to know you. Thank you, God, for your great love for us. Send us out, Lord, as your messengers of mercy, grace, and love. We pray in Jesus' name.